Good morning. It's good to see the house full. I want to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's on page 726. Isaiah chapter 6. This is a a well-known passage where Isaiah records for us how he was called by God to ministry. But before we dive into the text, I want us to take a look together at the first few words of verse 1. This is what sets the stage. This is what tells us what the whole passage is really about. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I was reading a commentary by Matthew Henry, and here's what he had to say. About the time that he died, the king, Isaiah saw this vision of God upon a throne. For when the breath of princes goes forth and they return to the earth, this is our comfort, that the Lord shall reign forever. Israel's king dies, but Israel's God still lives. From the mortality of great and good men, we should take occasion to look up with an eye of faith to the king eternal and immortal. Here's how I might paraphrase those first few words of the verse. In the year the earthly king died, I saw the heavenly king. In the year the earthly king breathed his last, I saw the God who lives forever. In the year the earthly king died, weak and sickly from leprosy, I saw the all powerful God. The point is that God's the one in the spotlight. The star of this passage isn't Isaiah, it's God. We're taken to God's throne room and we're given a picture of who God is and what he's really like. Isaiah's life was forever changed by this encounter with God and I think God has recorded it for us so that we can see God. That's the first thing he wants. Can we see God? We see God in all his glory and his majesty and his holiness. And we also see the sinfulness of man. Sin that separates us from God. Sin that convicts us. But thank God, that's not where the story ends. We also see God's grace. Grace that forgives our sins and grace that invites us to be a part of God's work. So with all that in mind, I want us to begin with this idea. Isaiah sees God's holiness. Isaiah sees God's holiness. And that is verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah tells us this vision came in the year that King Uzziah died. So that's roughly 750 years before the birth of Jesus. Overall, Uzziah was a good king, but he was prideful, and his pride was his undoing. The book of Second Chronicles tells us that Uzziah tried to enter the temple to burn incense. That wasn't his job. That was the job of the priests. And when Uzziah was confronted by the priests with the censer still in his hand, he became angry. And God struck Isaiah, I'm sorry, Uzziah, with leprosy. And he lived as a leper for the rest of his life. Now these were troubling times, especially for the people of God. Assyria was a rising power in the north. And there was every reason to believe that Assyria and its armies would come marching their way to Jerusalem's gates. And Isaiah was concerned. The king was dead. And I can imagine the kinds of questions that were running through Isaiah's mind. Would the new king be a godly man? Would the new king be challenged? Uzziah's father and grandfather were both assassinated. Could the same thing happen to this new king? And could the new king keep Assyria from attacking? I'm sure all of those things were heavy on Isaiah's heart. But then he's given this vision where he's transported to the throne room of God. And as we look through Isaiah's eyes, we see so many things confirming God's kingship. First of all, in, in uh, verse 1, Isaiah refers to God as the Lord. In Hebrew, it's Adonai. It's a title that signifies kingship. It speaks of God as king over his creation, ruling and reigning over everything he's made. And Isaiah also tells us that God was seated on a throne. But this wasn't an ordinary throne. Isaiah says it was high and lifted up, high above the earth, high above every throne of every earthly king. And the train of God's robe filled the temple. In ancient times, the king's robe was a, a sign of his power and prestige. And God's robe was so long that it filled all the empty spaces in the temple. So Isaiah, he sees the throne, he sees the robe, and there's no doubt in his mind that God is the undisputed ruler over heaven and earth. So much of what Isaiah saw pointed to the glory of God and the majesty of God, but that's not really what penetrated Isaiah's heart. That's not really what affected him spiritually. What penetrated Isaiah's heart was the holiness of God. 
And I want us to begin with a definition. What is holiness? What do we mean when we say that God is holy? Well, throughout Scripture, holiness has two different meanings. They're, they're different, but they're also interconnected. And I, I want to quote a very helpful definition from R.C. Sproul, who was for many years a pastor and a theologian. First of all, holiness refers to God's transcendence, to his magnificence, to that sense in which God is higher and superior to anything there is in the creaturely realm. But it also refers to God's righteousness, to God's moral purity. And those two things always go hand in hand. So now that we have a, a working definition, let's go back to Isaiah's vision. Isaiah says that flying above the throne of God were seraphs. This is the only time we see them in Scripture. The word seraph literally means burning. So the seraphs might have had a fiery appearance. We don't know. But we do know that they were burning with love and zeal for God and for their God-given work. The seraphs had three pair of wings. Two of those were for covering. That's a sign of humility, a sign of reverence. Even these angelic creatures came into God's presence with reverential fear. And the third pair of wings was used for flying. Not walking to do God's will, not running to do God's will, flying to do God's will. It was a sign of swiftness. It was a sign of cheerfulness and devotion to what God had given them to do. But really the most incredible thing about the seraphs was what they did. The seraphs began crying out the holiness of God and the fullness of his glory. And here's what they said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that threefold repetition, holy, 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 is full of meaning. That's how the Old Testament writers would describe perfection. God is three times holy. God is perfectly holy. He is perfect in his holiness. Matthew Henry says it better than I can. He is holy, thrice holy, infinitely holy, originally, perfectly, and eternally holy. And as if that wasn't enough to overwhelm poor Isaiah as he stands before the throne of God, the foundations of the temple began to shake. What the seraphs were crying out about the holiness of God was a truth that was so real and so powerful that it shook the temple to its foundation. And the temple began filling up with smoke. That's a sign of God's presence too, like the pillar of cloud that led the Israelites in the desert or the smoke that covered Mount Sinai. 
So Isaiah sees the majesty of God, but more importantly, he sees the holiness of God. And there's one more thing I want us to see. It's subtle, so it's easy to miss. When these seraphs were crying out the holiness of God, look at how they refer to God. He's the Lord, but this time it's in all caps. And that means it's the divine name. Yahweh. It's the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's God's covenant name. It emphasizes that he's the promise-making God, that he's the promise-keeping God, and that he's a God who pursues relationship. And we'll see just how important that is as we move to the next point, which is this. Isaiah sees his own sin. Isaiah sees his own sin. Look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, of hosts. When you are confronted by the holiness of God, your first response is to acknowledge your own sinfulness. What's the first thing Isaiah says? Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm doomed. I'm ruined. I'm undone. From a human perspective, his situation looked hopeless. And we see this again and again in the Old Testament. Uh, look at Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. I'm sure you remember Pastor Darren taking us through the book of Job. And you might remember that Job spends about 40 chapters complaining. And then God shows up. And this is what Job says after God speaks through the whirlwind. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And then in the book of Exodus, chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, this is where God appeared to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And here's what uh, Moses records for us. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And the reality is, that's a picture of every one of us. Like Isaiah, like Job, like the Israelites, when we come face to face with the holiness of God, we know there are no ifs, ands, or buts. We know we're sinners. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.23. It's so simple. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. 
all means all. You, me, all of us are sinners. And then Romans 6.23 tells us what the consequence is. For the wages of sin is death. Sin is serious business. Sin brings death. Sin brings eternal separation from God. That's why Isaiah stood before God and said, I'm lost. I'm doomed. I am spiritually broken, and I can't fix it. Now, unfortunately, we've watered down what sin really is. In our flesh, we have ways of making us feel okay with our sin. Here's one thing we do. We minimize our sin. That's where we try to downplay our sin as much as we can. We might say something like this. Oh, that's not a lie. That's a white lie. And that means it's okay. We try to convince ourselves that other people might be sinners, but our sins really aren't that big a deal. We also try to excuse our sin away. That's where we try to make our sins seem small by covering them up with excuses or blaming somebody else. That's what happened in the garden, do you remember? Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and nobody stepped up and took responsibility for their own sin. And listen, we may even deny that our sin is sin. That's what the world does, right? You hear it all the time. That's not sin. That's a woman's choice. That's not sin. That's an alternate lifestyle. And those things get tweeted and shared and liked to the point that they can creep their way into the church. But we have to see our sin biblically. We have to see our sin for what it really is. And I love what R.C. Sproul says. He pounds it like a hammer, okay? Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything and the one who has given us life itself. So when we disobey God, we're not just breaking the law. We're rebelling. We're rejecting God's authority. We basically thumbed our nose at God and said, I don't care what you say. I want to do it my way. That's why R.C. Sproul can say that it's treason. We're rejecting God's reign. We're rejecting his right to rule and reign in our lives. And this treason comes with a price tag. What did Paul tell us in Romans chapter 6? The wages of sin is death. And see, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to this crisis point, to the point where we come face to face with our treason. Here's what Jesus says 
in John chapter 16, verse 8. And when he comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit tells us that God's way is the way of righteousness. God's way is the true way. So the Holy Spirit shows us what God says, and then he shows us how we've fallen short. That's his job. I've watched, over the years, I've watched a lot of TV crime shows. Maybe some of you are addicted to those too. 20 years ago, shows like CSI began focusing on forensics. All of the testing that's done at the crime scene. One of the things that always amazed me is luminol. That's what they spray at the crime scene. Everything could have been wiped clean, but if there's blood, any blood at all, luminol and a black light will make it show up. Now, here's the awful truth. If you're unsaved, your heart right now is a crime scene. All of your sin, all of your rebellion, every time you've broken God's law, it's all there in your heart. And it's accusing you. It's like an indictment. But you can't see it. Not with your earthly eyes. The work of the Holy Spirit is like the luminol. He begins to speak to you and to show you the truth of God's word. And then he flips the switch. And suddenly, everything that was dark and hidden becomes as clear as day. We see what God sees and we call it what God calls it. It's sin. Just like Isaiah, we see the sin inside of us. Maybe for the first time in our lives, we see it for what it is. We feel the weight of it. And we understand the consequences. Unless God does something, we're just as lost and just as hopeless as Isaiah was. And that brings us to the next point. God delivers Isaiah. God delivers Isaiah. Read with me Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched it to my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah stands before God, tried, convicted, and condemned by his own sin. So it's God who takes the initiative. One of the seraphs takes a hot burning coal from the altar. And that's important. This would have been the altar of incense in the temple. So it's a picture of God's cleansing and purifying work. And the seraph takes that red-hot coal 
and he touches it to Isaiah's lips, and he says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Only God can forgive sin, and only God can take away guilt. If you know your Old Testament, you know that God introduced the sacrificial system. If one of God's people sinned, they would bring an animal that was pure and without any defects, usually a lamb, and they would sacrifice it. They would put their hands on the animal's head and they would identify with the animal and then the animal was sacrificed. It died in the sinner's place. But God tells us in the book of Hebrews all of these Old Testament sacrifices were a shadow. They were a picture of the real thing. They were pointing us to the real thing. And the real thing is Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth. He took flesh and he walked among us. Jesus was God in the flesh. He taught us who God is and what he's like. He preached the love of God and the law of God. He performed signs and wonders that showed us God's power and his loving kindness. And he lived a life of full and perfect obedience. But as wonderful as all of those things are, that's not the big story. The big story of why Jesus came was the cross. Jesus was born to die. His destination from the moment of his birth was the cross. Because it's only through the cross that God could make salvation possible for us. Just like the sacrificial lamb, Jesus was pure. Jesus was sinless. And he went to the cross and died. The sinless one died for sinners like you and me. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But listen, right now you may be trying to convince yourself you can make things right with Jesus without having Jesus in the picture. You can get this sin thing right. You can get salvation taken care of without having to involve Jesus. I told you earlier that we have ways of making us feel okay with our sin. We do the same thing with the gospel. We've invented false gospels that are giving us false hope. So let me run through those quickly. First, there's the gospel of morality. The gospel of morality. I may have sinned, okay, but I can make up for the bad things by being good. Okay, I can clean up my act. I can stop uh, cussing and telling lies. I can stop drinking and carousing. I can try to clean up my thought life. And before you know it, I'll have this sin thing taken care of. What's God's response? Romans 
chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Morality is a dead end. Well, then there's the gospel of works. Maybe I've sinned, but I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I can uh, make things right with God by the good things I do. I can give to the poor. Uh, I can volunteer my time at the soup kitchen. I can keep working and working until finally my good works outweigh my bad ones. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Good works is a dead end. And then there's the gospel of church going. Surely I can make myself presentable to God if I do enough churchy things, right? I can come to church every week. I can sing the songs. I can even uh, give to the missions and the ministries of the church. But those things don't have any saving power. Can you see the gospel of church going? is just the gospel of works wrapped up in a different wrapping paper. You're still trying to work your way to heaven. Church going is a dead end. So let me read one more scripture. Isaiah 64, 6. And I'm reading this one from the, uh, the New Living Translation. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. I can't put it any plainer. You can't save yourself. You can't do anything in your own power to erase the sin and the guilt. Only God can do that. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross willingly. He went to the cross as an act of love. It wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love. And he calls out to us. Jesus calls to us. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Jesus would say, turn away from your sin. Turn away from your pride. Turn away from your rebellion and turn to him. Turn to Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus to forgive your sins and to give you a new life and a new hope. And listen, he's the God of relationship. I said that before. When you're saved, you're made a part of God's family. You're not just forgiven, you're adopted. Men, that means you become sons of God. 
Ladies, you become God's daughters. And that brings me to the last point. God sends Isaiah. God sends Isaiah. Take a look with me at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. I really love this part of the story. God invites Isaiah to be a part of his work. I mean, keep in mind what's happened up to this point. Just a few verses ago, Isaiah was saying he was lost. He was undone. His situation was hopeless. But God dealt with his sin. And now God says, Isaiah, I've got work for you to do. I'm the king, Isaiah. And now that you're a part of my family, I've got kingdom work for you to do. Wherever you go, Isaiah, you're representing the king. And you're on the king's business. I really wish as believers that we could see ourselves through God's eyes. We are sons and daughters of God Most High. And he's given us work to do, kingdom work. We weren't saved to sit. We were saved to serve. And God wants to work through you. And I, I just want to quickly share four verses as we close. Four verses that show us the calling of God in the lives of his people. Okay? And I'll start with Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's a sermon right there. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. God calls every believer to be a light. Take a look around you. It's a dark world. How are the lost supposed to see the truth? How are they supposed to see the light of the gospel? It's through ordinary men and women living out lives of holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Steady, consistent, God-honoring living that shines like a beacon in the dark. So I have to ask, how's your shining? Does your life stand out so the lost can see Jesus in you? Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has made us priests. Okay, what does a priest do? Well, for one thing, priests are caretakers of God's Word. We should know the truth of God's Word 
we should live it and cherish it and teach it. And priests also have a ministry of prayer. We should be men and women of prayer, especially intercessory prayer. So what kind of priest are you? Do you nourish yourself on God's word or is it gathering dust on a bookshelf? Do you have a consistent prayer life? Are you selfish with your prayer time? Is it always me, me, me? Or are you praying for your country, praying for your church, praying for the people that you love and care for? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we, every believer, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. An ambassador is someone who is appointed to represent a king and speak on the king's behalf. And Paul says that you and I, as believers, are ambassadors to the world, representing God and the gospel. Can people see Jesus in the things that you do and say? Are you proclaiming God's word? Are you defending it against attacks? You're an ambassador. That's your job. Look, people are desperately looking for answers in this crazy, mixed-up world. And some of them may be your neighbors. Some of them may be the people you work with or you go to school with. Will you share Jesus with them? And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. I like how one translation puts it. We are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your good works can't save you. Only Jesus can save, your, uh, can save you from your sins. But this verse teaches us that Jesus saves us for good works. That means in eternity past, God charted a path for your life. Your life isn't random. Your life has a God-given direction and a God-given purpose. God has kingdom things, things that have eternal value that he wants to accomplish through you. And he wants you to embrace those things and walk in them. Now, can you say that's true? in your life? Do you know God's plan? If you do, are you walking in it? And if you don't, will you make it a point to pray that God would make his plan known to you? I think every believer wants to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. I know I do. But we can't hear Jesus say, well done, until we say, here I am. Here I am, Lord. I'm surrendering my life to your will. I'm following your plan. Will you be like Isaiah and say, here I am. Send me.
So I want to bring us to a close. What do we do with a text like this? What's the application? Well, I want to keep it as simple as I can. If you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, I'm here to say that's the biggest need in your life. That should be priority number one. Sin is real, and it comes with a terrible price tag. Sin brings death, but Jesus brings life. Jesus is the answer. And today, today if you hear his voice, the word of God says don't harden your heart. Say yes to Jesus. We have men and women who will be happy to talk with you, to pray with you, but don't leave today without responding to what the Spirit is saying to you. And for those of you who know Jesus, are you living out your God-given calling? God called you to be a light. God called you to be a priest. God called you to be an ambassador. Are you being faithful to what God has called you to be? And what about the good works that he's called you to? Are you walking in them? Can you really say, in my life, I'm on the king's business? However God may be stirring your heart today, I pray that you'll respond and that you'll make yourself worthy, living a life worthy of that calling in your life. Let's pray together.